Welcome to Leadership is No Accident. I'm Andy Robbins from Oyster, the leadership development company. In each episode, leaders from all kinds of backgrounds share their leadership stories. We explore what got them started, what they learned along the way, and what ultimately fueled them to achieve their goals. We explore this and a whole lot more so you can take your leadership game to the next level. My guest today is Catherine Baldotti Donlan. Catherine worked at the who's who of athletic industry companies, starting at the very bottom and working her way up to the most senior executive leadership roles. We talk about the emergence of women's sports in the athletic industry and Catherine's role as a champion for female athletes. We also discuss her leadership journey in a male-oriented industry and how other leaders helped Catherine fulfill her potential. Catherine's leadership insights provide priceless advice for anyone who wants to accelerate their career and fulfill their potential. Let's hear from Catherine. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for joining me this morning. I've been so looking forward to our conversation. Oh, Andy, excited to be here. Absolutely excited. Great. Well, I'd like to really just start by just reflecting on your career. I mean, you've worked at a variety of household athletic brand companies. So how did you get started in the athletic industry? Uh, Andy, it's a great story. I actually grew up overseas. I lived in Holland and New Zealand from the age of 10. And so when I came back to the United States to go to university, I went to Tufts, very proud school here, very proud alumni here in Boston. And I was an international relations major because I had this vision that I wanted to continue this life of living overseas. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to be in that realm. So I came to Tufts, I was an international relations major, but I also played lacrosse on the women's lacrosse team. Uh And that was an absolutely formative time for me from being on a team, playing at fast paced, lots of different great leadership sort of threads I can take from there as we continue on talking. And I realized when I graduated that there were really not a lot of opportunities for women's lacrosse players in 1990. And so I said, all right, I need to get a job in, you know, that's relevant to my major. So I joined a market research company that published market research reports on telecommunications and emerging markets. And quite frankly, after about two years, I was insanely bored. And I realized that I honestly could give a crap how many digital switches were in China. And all of my passion and energy from the field had been, I was pouring it into the gym because at the gym at this time, we're talking early nineties was the explosion of step Reebok, group exercise. And that's really where I found my energy, my passion, just sort of what I was thinking about constantly, not digital switches in China. So I realized at this early age in my early twenties that I had to find a way to combine my career with my passion and my energy. So the plan I came up with, with my 22, 23 year old brain, and this was a 
fabulous conversation to have with your parents when you've just graduated from university is I'm going to quit my job, become a full-time aerobics instructor and market myself to the athletic footwear industry as an aerobics instructor with a brain. And believe it or not, six months later, I was hired at Reebok to be the assistant marketing manager in the equipment division to help them launch Slide Reebok. And from there, my career took off. 25 years later, I spent across multiple global brands and multiple different functions. Wow. Well, I tell you what, I, you know, there's, there's a term in leadership around possibility thinking. <laughs> and that's a great example of possibility thinking. And so often I think we get into the, well, no, I couldn't possibly do that. But kudos to you for setting it out and going after it. And uh, this, 22, 23, if it didn't work, what could you lose? What could I lose? And, you know, it's interesting. I think at that time it was this unwavering confidence in myself that I got from being an athlete all through high school as well yeah. as in college. And it's advice I give to young people is you have to try all sorts of things because you have no idea what you like and you don't like. I got a job that related directly to my major. And I realized it wasn't a great fit for me. So when I found my passion in sport and fitness and health and wellness, which I continue to be insanely passionate about to this day, it just, it became easy. That sort of hard work and energy and all just, it became easy. Well, I was a geology grad who figured out <laughs> working on an oil rig wasn't going to be my thing. So <laughs> I'm with you, thankfully. <laughs> so you got started in the athletic industry and looking at your career, I mean, you had stints almost at the who's who of athletic companies, almost surrounding Nike sort of in the US. And you, you kind of had a, almost a unique vantage point. Um, and I'm curious over that sort of period of time, how did the athletic industry change? I mean, you talked about this sort of real boom in the 1990s. Yeah. Curious about what sort of trends you saw over that time. Yeah, you know, I really was at the advent of so many different categories and distribution channels and things that we consider just sort of we accept today. Yeah. So I would start with saying, you know, first of all, I was at the advent of really women's sports and sports specific footwear and apparel. And, you know, I launched new categories when I was at Reebok. I, I was the, somehow I became the product manager of women's sport. And I will take a moment and say, when I got that job, I pretty much had a George Costanza moment thinking, that's it. I, I've, this is it. This is what I wanted to do my whole life. I'm out of here. I mean, I was so thrilled. Wow. wow. So I was there when we were making decisions about women's basketball leagues, the WNBA, the ABL, the advent of women's soccer, and being the product manager of women's sport, I actually was the product manager for Reebok's first women's only basketball. It was the Rebecca Lobo basketball shoe for her debut with the New York Liberty and the WNBA. I was part of, you know, launching Lisa Fernandez, the gold medal, you know, softball winner from, you know, the Atlanta Olympics, her cleat. So it was a really exciting time to be first in a category and for me to now see how 
the, you don't need to convince anyone about the importance of women's only product, women's only apparel, and really why women's bodies are different, feet are different. So it was really great to be at the start of that. Yeah. You know, and the other thing I would say is I think about how the industry has changed. When I was at Rika was really when there was the advent of e-commerce was starting. And that has been an absolutely amazing shift in how stories are told, business is done, how we really set up organizations, the competencies that are needed, how you interact with consumers, what their journey is. And that's been an absolutely explosive time to really think about how it has changed from this traditional model of brand to retailer to consumer to this direct-to-consumer just revolution that's happened. And the other thing I would say is I think about what's changed. When I got into Reebok in the athletic footwear industry, this was a heavily male-dominated culture. It was dominated by former athletes, whether they were Olympic, whether they were pro, and there was very little understanding of one, women in the workplace, and two, the female consumer. So to see how far this has come, whether I think about my own career, and it's a little funny to say breaking glass ceilings, because I feel like they've been broken everywhere, but a big part of my career was breaking glass ceilings and many women sort of lending me a hand along the way. Yeah, it's, you know, it's fascinating looking back. I hadn't really thought about that, but wow, there's so much change. Uh, Just an enormous amount of change. I mean, I had years of being the only one in a boardroom, the only female in a boardroom, you know, pretty much seven, eight years ago, I had many years of being the only female in a sales presentation with major retailers. And, you know, one of the things I talk a lot about is one of the things I learned, and it's a leadership lesson that I want to make sure that we really drill down on is, I believe I was successful because I learned very early on, I had to be authentic, authentic to who I am. Mm. I was never going to be able to fit into the mold of this amazing, charismatic, former pro athlete, Olympic athlete that was put up on a pedestal. I had to be real and true to who I was, model leadership behavior that I believed in. I needed to show my teammates, my peers, people that work for me that that I was not only strategic, that I was hardworking, I could be inspirational, I could make tough decisions, but I could also be vulnerable and ask for help. Mm -hmm. I could be, um, you know, I could laugh at myself. And I had to be very real as to who I was because that way I could create trust and openness and honesty to to lead versus trying to be somebody that I wasn't. And I really believe being authentic to who I am was one of the keys to being able to elevate in a male-dominated environment. Yeah, well, I I think that is so important. we can try to be some persona that's yeah yep but and it doesn't work it doesn't no it absolutely doesn't work and you know I tell a couple of different stories about it and I just you know I should share with you that you know one of my favorite stories that I would always tell is 
you know, I was in sales for a long time, whether I was, you know, we called it carrying the bag or leading a sales team or leading the sales force for Converse. And I used to joke, we'd go into these accounts, you know, great accounts, very male dominated. And, you know, we'd all say hello. They'd say hello to me. And then we'd have a couple minutes of, I used to call it the bro fest. We'd do the the handshake, the bump shoulders. You look good. No, you look good. Did you see the game? You know, we'd spend a couple of minutes where they could do that. And then we'd all sit down at the table and the leader of the account would turn to me and say, Catherine, what are we here to talk about today? What do we need to get done? And I really believe that was a testament to me not trying to outgrow the bro. And I'm, I'm not saying that in a critical yeah. way. It was just sort of a cultural thing. And it was me being who I am, knowing that I worked hard, I was energetic, I was passionate, but that I was strategic and there to lead a mutually beneficial partnership. And I think that was really important in terms of breaking through in yep. this male-dominated culture. Well, I was just thinking how difficult that must have been for you as a, a female leader in, you know, as you say, a male-dominated industry, but a male-dominated function in terms of sales. Yes. <laughs> yes. And how important what that person did for you in terms of uh, advocate for you, I guess. Yep. And yeah. basically, yeah, you know, so important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the other things that I found was, you know, I built trust being myself with my retailers. I built trust with my peers, with my colleagues, with executives. And a big part of that was the opportunity I was given by one of my mentors, David Allen at Converse, was that he always took the opportunity to let me shine or go to meetings in his place or set me up. And I think because of that, there was this understanding that I had a deep-seated interest in moving businesses together and move forward. If I think about partnerships with key accounts. Yeah. So, you know, that was an amazing opportunity. You know, and the other thing is, Andy, I would tell you, I never hid that I was a working mom. I didn't make excuses, but, you know, I always smile when I think about you know, my time at Puma, especially because we spent significant amount of times going to Germany where uh, global headquarters were. And we would be prepping for these seven to 10 day trips for weeks. We had to set up meetings. What was our objectives? How are we presenting our strategies? How were we really advocating for additional resources for our businesses? So these were intense times to get ready for these overseas trips. But what I also had as a working mother was I had to hand off the schedule for three kids under the age of 10 to my husband and our nanny that came in to help. And I used to get to the airport and everybody was dressed, ready to go, ready to have a drink for the overnight. I laughed about it and I was honest about it so that, you know, years gone by, I had someone reach out to me last week about sort of motherhood, working motherhood tips that I must have been spouting off at the airport because I laughed about it and I just, it was part of me. And, you know, I didn't make excuses, but I wanted to make sure that people understood that that's part of me and it was real. And those were things that you dealt with just as importantly as prepping and being prepared and making sure that your trip was a success from a business standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, I have nothing but just incredible respect for 
working mothers like yourself because <laughs> I mean, gosh, I, I found working at Intel hard. If I literally was, you know, the head of the family as well, I, I have no idea how I could have done that. So that's funny. I can't tell you, my husband and I really split things. But, you know, there were times where I would just smile about it, where I remember being at Puma and every meeting started at 8 a.m. And I realized the reason it started at 8 a.m. was that um, my boss just left in the morning. He didn't have to help with anything to do with the kids. So I finally went to him and said, you got to help me out. I just I swear nine o'clock will make all the difference in my life if we can just move it. And if we can just start at nine, we can be intense. We can be productive. We can get things done. We can be creative. We can solve problems. And he looked at me. He never even thought that 8 a.m. Yeah. was an issue or why. And it was great from then onward. Quite frankly, whether I was the leader or part of the team, we always started at nine. Kudos to you for making a request and, and <laughs> good on him to listen as well. Because it was there's, great. A of, there's a lot of blindness. If we, if we don't experience it ourselves, we have no idea. Yeah. Um, yep. Agree. So, so you talked about authenticity, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, you've been incredibly successful in, in, in a whole range of companies, really, in the athletic industry. What else would you say are those pillars of your success? What are those things that have really set you apart, would you say? Yeah. You know, I, I think being authentic was really important, you know, and the other thing I really um, learned this lesson early on in my career, and I consider it one of my North stars for leadership is this just deep, active listening. And let me tell you, let me give you the example of how I learned this and how I've incorporated it into how I work. Great. I was, a, I think, an associate product manager um, at Reebok. And I will never forget, I probably should find him and tell him how impactful he's been on my um, leadership career, but there was this vice president named Terry Tracy. And the culture at Reebok was very hierarchical. You know, we, presidents spoke to the presidents and vice presidents, and he really made a point, I'll never forget in a meeting of asking my opinion. And I was over the moon. These were, you know, sneakers and projects and programs that I was pouring my heart into. And he asked my opinion and he, I could walk, you know, he really listened to what I had to say. And I was so thrilled with that. And I watched him, you know, over the next couple months and realized that he truly was open and present and actively listened to everyone that he spoke to, whether it was a president of a retailer, whether it was a product manager, whether it was his colleague. And that made him a great leader because he really understood different perspectives and it helped him truly, in my mind, come up with great paths forward that was well thought out, really deep understanding of issues and creative in its solutions. And that's something that really was impressed upon me early on was that idea of being open and listening to everyone. So I I think of myself as a leader and how many times I stood up and talked about change and being more efficient and being more productive. And the only way that that's successful is if you talk to the people that are doing those jobs. I can't tell you how to do something different or better the best ideas can come from anywhere. And I think that's something that I really took from him and have tried to make one of my North Stars is that 
real active listening, but active listening with everyone. Fabulous. It's so important. So important. And, you know, leadership is really about engaging the people around us. Yep. You know, not only does the, I feel like that's my tenant about, you know, this active listening. When I built teams, it's really important, you know, and I think of it in two different ways. I need to be able to actively listen and understand my direct reports as individuals. Yeah. Where do they need my help? How can I help? How do they like to be helped? Do they need me to help strategically? Do they need me to just validate what they're doing? Do they need me to work shoulder to shoulder with them? And I think that's really important because I can't help them grow. We can't achieve our objectives until I really understand that. So I think about as I'm putting a team together and thinking about where we want to go, I need to really listen to the individual. Yeah. But then as a leader, I have to really know when to lean in or lean out as I think about team dynamics. So I need to be able to lean in and lead when there might be sort of the alpha dog in the room and how do I balance that out? Or I need to be able to lean out and say, you know what, from a team dynamic standpoint, I need to give this person the opportunity to shine. They have a lot to contribute and we're not hearing everyone's voice. We're not moving forward. So as I learned from Terry early on, this importance of active listening, I think about it as listening to everyone, listening to the individual, but also as a leader, how I listen, how I read the room, and how I elevate to manage the team. I love what you're saying there, because to me, it's, it, it really sort of brings up situational leadership. You know, being able to read the situation and mm-hmm. apply the appropriate leadership style. You know, yeah. I, I find that we tend to grow up and we gravitate towards a leadership style that we're comfortable with. But then it's like, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But what you're saying here is, hey, you, you've got a tool bag. Yep. And being able to read the situation and bring out the right style brings out the best in the people around you. And as you say, for teams, this is what it's all about. Leadership is, you know, great leaders are multipliers. Yeah, I absolutely believe that. And, you know, I I love to bring it back to sports. I was asked to go back and speak to um, the seniors and the captains at a lunch a couple of years ago at Tufts University. And I talked about the power of leading from within. And, you know, I talked about, listen, as a collegiate athlete, you know, I played defense and my job was to run the defensive unit. I needed to see how the play was unfolding. I needed to communicate where you needed to be. I needed to be the one to make sure that we were all in the right places and ready to help. But on the same side, I had to be able to give feedback and take feedback because I, I, I'd love to tell you that I never made a mistake on the field, but clearly we all know that that's not the case. Yeah. So sort of really like that idea as I think about that toolbox and where I learned it and the importance of being authentic and deep listening from a leadership standpoint also should create this culture of feedback and there should be no apprehension about it either. And it it started with on the field, you know, hey, you needed to make that slide a second earlier. You know, Catherine, you didn't call out that pick. And I feel like 
sort of getting that from an early age as a leader, but as a team member really helped me as I progressed in my career. You know, I'm so glad that you're saying that because I got to say, I'm troubled by a trend that I'm seeing right now. Mm. It's, it's sensitivity in the workplace to critical feedback. Mm. And, and it's a, such a shame because, you know, you and I have had a lot of critical feedback, I'm sure. And <laughs> yes. I look at that and as painful as it was at the time, yeah. and maybe I didn't think it was fair. But I tell you what, that was so helpful and critical, really, in learning and growing. Yep. Yep. And if we're only ever being told what we want to hear, kind of worries me for the future of, wow, we're missing such an opportunity. Yeah. So glad you're highlighting that. Yeah. And, you know, Andy, I really agree with that. I think a lot of it comes down to self-awareness. And listen, I agree with you. Have I had some conversations or reviews with bosses who have told me things that I clearly didn't agree with at the time? And I don't know if it's youthful exuberance or misplaced sort of confidence or whatever it was. But one of the things that I always did as a leader was I always said, before I make that decision, I I just need to think about it overnight. Give me overnight. I swear when I'm on the train in the morning, you will hear from me. I promise you. And I just needed to percolate on things because it's our natural reaction to push back. It's sort of this self-protection mechanism. But if you don't take that time to listen and learn, you are missing an opportunity because it's about that concept of fail forward. If you don't fail forward as a leader, an entrepreneur, an athlete, you can't pick yourself up and figure out what you're going to do different. And I think that's so important. And I think it's not only a culture of feedback, but also a culture of expecting failure in terms of it's okay, pick yourself up. To me, it's more about the resilience you have. But listen, I would love to tell you that every sales presentation I did, every strategic plan, every, you know, operating plan that I presented was fabulously received and we you know did everything perfectly god that is not the case i can't tell you how many times i had to pull my team back in and say okay let's think about this you know we've got to think about our plan how do we creatively solve for the feedback that we got how do we creatively solve because we put 18 months into launching this program in the united states and it's unbelievable but you know what the consumer didn't feel the same way and didn't buy it so how do we think about what we can do different? How do we learn? How do we let it inform our go forward strategies? And I, I really believe that that is an important muscle to build as a person, as a leader, as a teammate. Yeah, you know, and you're touching on something else here, which is also near and dear to my heart. And that is focusing on the outcome. You know, yeah. it's so easy to judge our performance, but I did all this work. But what I hear you say, you said, well, what was the outcome? Did, did we achieve what we wanted? Okay, well, we didn't. And that's okay. What we've learned is we need to do something a little differently. Yep. Yep. And, and let's focus on achieving that outcome rather than just, wow, I did all this work. It's such an important distinction. You know, Andy, I really, you know, I, I absolutely agree with you. And in in the world of consumer brands, 
your lesson is right in front of you. You can do all the work in the world, but if the consumer doesn't love it, doesn't pick it up, doesn't buy it, doesn't have a great experience, doesn't tell you it's fabulous because in today's world, it's everything is secular. You, you have that relationship 360 degrees. That work is great, but if you don't learn from it, you're just going to keep doing it again and again. And again, that's to me, that is the beauty of being part of this industry of sport and health and wellness where everyone is so passionate about the product and what they need um, that they're going to tell you. And you have to be able to take that and learn from it. And, you know, I think that's one of the blessings of today that we didn't have when I was coming up in the industry. And that's this just trove of data. Mm. How does data help you? How can it inform what are the conclusions? I used to constantly say, thank you so much for this, but this is like reading a weather report. You're telling me what happened yesterday. Yeah. What I need to know is what's the red thread? How is this going to inform what we're doing? Are we going to do something differently? And I feel like we have the opportunity in so many businesses to really take this just massive amount of data. And I think about the sports world, whether it's wearables or connections yeah. or apps and how do we take it and really find out what the consumer needs and adjust quickly? So I sort of my long-winded way of saying, I couldn't agree more with you. And it's great to do all this work. It's important to learn. But if you don't take the time to figure out what worked, what didn't work, what is the consumer telling you? How are you using this data to move forward? Then you're going to just keep doing the same thing over and over and probably getting mediocre results. And that's not okay in today's consumer products world. Yeah. Yeah. And it does lead us into a habit of just working harder. And that's not the sort of life I want to lead. That's for sure. No, no, no. So uh, another area that you are really well known for, and, and it just shows in your results, looking through, you know, your bio, uh, this word came up over and over, and that is strategy. Yeah, setting the strategic direction and being sort of a visionary leader. Clearly, it's a it's a talent that you have. I'm I'm really curious. You know, a lot of leaders struggle with that. You know, and for you, was that something that just came naturally, or is that something that you had to sort of learn and develop? You know, I would I have I ever had formal training in how to write a strategic plan or visioning? No. What I would tell you is working for whether it was Reebok, Rika, or Puma, and even for Converse, we were not the dominant brand. There was always that, you know, big swoosh out west, Nike, that owned the majority of the market. And what I had to do, whether I was at Reebok, in sales or in product or Rika or Puma is I had to always think about how could we be different? How could we tell our story so that the consumer wanted to pick us over the well-funded sort of Nike machine? How could we understand something about the consumer that's gonna make them just gravitate to our story, our product, our brand? How are we gonna create a relationship with them? And how do we be different? And I think that's something that I had to learn really early on working for what I would call challenger brands. And that really developed into 
what I would say is strategic acumen and this ability to put plans together, create a North Star, create a where are we going to get teams aligned and moving all in the same direction. And I really think that ability, um, to our point earlier, you know, every plan I put together was not wildly successful, but there were many great successes along the way that I learned from. And I, that's something that I've taken with me. And, you know, even most recently I was doing an executive consulting assignment for a company that needed to put together their three-year plan for a capital raise. And that, those are sort of muscles and thinking about just really be broad and think about where you want to get to and think about what are those imperatives? What are those key things that you need to do and how can you articulate it? And so for me, it was all about learning how to distinguish ourselves in the market, whether it was to the consumer, to a retailer, how could we gain shelf space? How could we gain consumer you know, share of mind from a challenger brand? Got it. What I'm hearing there is just a really clear context. Yeah. What is it that you're dealing with? Really understanding, let's say, the playing field. Yep. Uh, being real about it and then being able to plot out a strategy within that. And I think that's just so important. Terrific advice there. Yeah, you know what, Andy, it's so funny. And it's absolutely the best way to say that is being real about where you are mm-hmm. and where you want to get to. Because if you are really honest about where you are, then the path to where you want to get to becomes much clearer. And you can really be sharp on where do we focus? What resources do we need? Where is the most important place for us to win? And where do we go from there? Yeah. Yeah, I think leadership is about realism. Absolutely. You have to be a possibility thinker, a visionary about where you want to go, but you have to be extremely real about where am I today? Where are we today? I I absolutely agree. And I, I do think one of the big things about leadership and strategic visioning is making sure that the team, whether it's your team, you know, your immediate team or the broader organization, knows where you want to go because it's really hard to ask folks to sort of all move in the same direction, to be passionate, to want to give more than they're sort of checking the box every day. If they don't know what they're contributing toward, what is the bigger thing that the team, the brand, the organization is trying to achieve and feeling part of that in my mind is an absolute unlock from a leadership and uh, producing results standpoint. Yeah, we're back to communication again. Ah, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we've talked about your athletic industry career. You know, your last role was a little different. It was. You know, you, you jumped into the world of venture capital or venture cap, VC led companies. Tell us about that. How was, how was that different or was it different? Or was it more of the same? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I love this question because um, when I left Converse, I had the opportunity to go work for a Bain Capital private equity wholly owned subsidiary. And I really wanted to see, you know, if my skills were transferable, 
And I was going to be able to do it with one of the best in the industry. It's almost like getting a peek under the curtain. Is it, is the wizard there? Is the wizard real? How does this work? So what I found with private equity is all leadership is the same, but this was compressed. Whereas in at Converse, at Puma, at Riga, I was writing five-year strategic plans, three-year plans, annual operating plans. This was about how do we immediately achieve our objectives? And our objective at Inacor, the company that I went to, was strategic sale, and it was an exit. Gotcha. And so to do that, this was about, again, understanding the investment thesis and how could we accelerate this sale process, turn the business around and sell the business. And so from a leadership standpoint, would I have loved to be able to build this long-term plan and get the team in the right place and develop it? And I really had to strip down sort of what it was that I needed to do as a leader, knowing that we had compressed, accelerated objectives. And to me, it really just came down to making sure the team was clear on what our objectives were yeah. and making sure that they were clear on focus because to achieve a turnaround in a shortened time frame, we achieved our strategic sale in 20 months. It came down to focus and making sure that I kept the team focused, learned to say no, and that really made sure that did we have the resources? Did we have the capabilities? Did we have the right people? And if we didn't, how do I help the people that we have and how do I bring in new talent? So it was all similar, I would say, philosophies from a leadership sort of principle standpoint, but it was just compressed. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a theme here uh, <laughs> and it, it illustrates again, another just really important leadership principle of leaders create focus and they're clear yeah. on what we're going to do and what we're not going to do, which is really the essence of strategy. And, you know, what I hear that you do really well is you really understand the landscape, the context. Yeah. Yep. You know, where are we going? What's important here? And then sharpen that pencil and get really, really clear about how we're yeah. going to get there. And that's yeah. the focus rather than get distracted. So, wow. It's just well, a you know, Andy, I would tell you that that's something that I took away from the CEO that I worked with at Inapor and with mm -hmm. the Bain executive team. It was about focus. I would call that their superpower. And I think before we spend a lot of time talking at Commerce about what we want to start doing, we want to just stop doing. And we debated it a little bit because there was always some legacy practices and things until sort of we made decisions. My time in private equity taught me that this is your goal. These are the things we need to do to get there, period. And we need to focus and drive. And once you're on that path and you've got the organization moving down that path, then we can look up and say, okay, what's the next margin stream? What's the next margin acceleration? So it was a great learning for me about just the, we'd always talked about focus, but this became absolute sharp point. Yeah, and kudos to you for stepping into a different world. And, you know, we learn from our experiences. We do, thank you. <laughs> that, that obviously was is added to your toolkit that we talked about. So, you know, we're, we're up to the current day. Yeah. And I'm curious now, I mean, you've sort of, you stepped away from the, from the, from the VC 
venture that got yeah. sold. So what's next? What lies ahead? Yeah, you know that I've been asking myself that question for a while now, Andy. No, so I, uh, so first of all, I committed to myself that I would take a year off once we sold um, Inacor. And you know, it's interesting. I had all of these fabulous plans. I joked I was going to travel, watch my kids play every game they ever were going to play. I was going to do all the things you think about doing when you've had your second helping of Aunt Annie's pretzels when you're stuck for a six-hour delay in Newark Airport. Just you sit there and be like, God, if I was only in Costa Rica doing <laughs> yoga, if I was only in Paris, all these things. Well, my plans and the rest of the world's plans were clearly interrupted with a global pandemic. Yeah. But I still gave myself the year off. And as I came out of that year, the beginning of this year, it really crystallized for me, my next chapter had to be with companies, didn't matter what stage they were in, that I was passionate about their purpose and I was passionate about the people. Mm. Because that really came through. I spent some time thinking about what I loved and what I didn't love, whether that was in the athletic world or in private equity. And that really came through to me as some guiding principles. So since the beginning of the year, I've actually really jumped into things I've loved. I joined Oregon Sports Angels, which has been great as I, you know, not only am I learning, but I'm able to give back. And I've met so many fabulous people. So I really enjoyed that. I've been mentoring at a accelerator here in the Boston area called Mass Challenge. And oh, yeah. that's been yeah. tremendous to be able to give back. And now I'm on the board of advisors of one of my mentees. And that's been a really rewarding process. Um, and then I started doing some executive consulting, which again, I, I'd always been in a leadership role internal. So that's actually been a lot of fun to learn, to come in, assess a problem, you know, help with the strategic plan and move forward. So as I think about my next chapter, um, you know, I really want to focus on that passion and people that I talked about. And I, I see board roles as well as I think that, um, I have it in me for one more internal leadership role. And I'm thinking about, I got to be back where my passion started. So if we go very back, you know, back to the beginning of my career, when I talk about combining that passion and it's about sport and fitness and health and wellness. So that's really what I'm starting to explore. And I'm, you know, excited to lean into what, um, what might come next. Wow. Well, that, that sounds very exciting. And you know, wherever you end up, they're going to be very, very lucky to have you. Oh, thank they, you. You know, what you've shared here, all of these insights are, are incredible. And oh, thank you. You know, we, we often, you know, forget about all these things, but what you've shared here are just really, really incredible insights for, for any leader. So Catherine, thank you. I mean, gosh, this has been wonderful. Oh, Andy, I really appreciate it. It's been a ton of fun a ton of fun. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to our next conversation. Sounds good. To learn more about Catherine, check out the links in the show notes. To listen to other leaders' stories, go to oyster.team forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to this show at Apple. Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The show is produced by Emma Holmstrom and is managed by Oyster, the leadership development company. Thanks for listening and leadership is no accident.